0: Now, there's great, great uh, lessons that we can glean from Ruth chapter 1, and I know you've heard the old saying, you can run, but you can't what? You can't hide, right? You can run, but you can't hide. I would ask for a show of hands this morning, but I don't want to cause anyone to lie in church. I would ask uh, you to raise your hand and say, uh, have you ever lived that out, tried to live that out? Have you ever tried to, to run and hide and then find out you can't? I think everybody would just about probably have to raise their hand on that question because at some point in our life, we've probably tried to run from something only to find out that we really couldn't escape it after all because life is full of hardships and trials. And the Bible even promises us that in our Christian lives, in our walks with God, it's going to be sometimes we're going to have trials and we're going to have hardships. And sometimes our human nature thinks we need to try to outrun those problems. Kind of like thinking about the election. Brother, mentioned the election a minute ago. It's like somebody who says, well, if all so-and-so is elected, I'm going to move to Canada. I'm just going to move to Canada. And you know, so many people have said that, that there's this little um, island up there called Cape Breton. And they've actually been advertising for Americans to defect to their island if a certain candidate is elected president because their their population is dwindling. And the the population that they have left is very advanced in age. I won't say they're old because they may be young at heart. But they're very advanced in age and the leaders are looking around saying, hey, these people want to move to Canada. Well, they can just move here. They've actually been advertising this in, in some areas. But you know what's funny? Those people would be trying to escape their problems by moving to Canada. These are, a lot of these people may be the same people, and I'm not endorsing it either way, but these may be some of the same people who don't like Obamacare. We'll see how they like the Canadian health care system, right? You can't run from your problems. You can't run from the things around you. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way. He said, the efforts which we make to escape from our destiny only serve to lead us to it only serve to lead us to it. The last time I preached, just a couple of weeks ago, I preached about the will of God and how God has a plan and a purpose for our lives, just as he had a plan and a purpose for the life of Jesus Christ. He's got a plan and a purpose for each and every one of our lives, but then we have this little thing that we call free will, where we get to decide, he gives us the choice, as to whether we want to follow his perfect plan or our very, very flawed plan. Sometimes following God's plan doesn't seem pleasant from a human perspective because we look around and see what everybody else is doing and we may allow the culture to push us one way or the other. Sometimes God's plan is not that pleasant because it involves a word that we don't like. And that word is discipline. Sometimes God's plan for our life requires discipline to get us back to where we need to be. And we see all of these things playing out in Ruth chapter 1. And uh, we're going to look at just a a few verses of Ruth chapter 1 this morning. And and we'll see these things play out there. But the overarching idea that I want us to, to be focusing on this morning... And we'll see this, and we'll see the resolution as we work through this, but the overarching idea is that running from our problems never leads to the solution. Running from our problems never leads to the solution. In Ruth chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. and they were, And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kileon also died, so the women survived so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together this morning. Most gracious God, thank you so much for allowing us to come into your house this morning to worship you in song and to worship you in the study of your word. And I pray that that's what happens now. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and just give to each one of us the lesson that you want us to have out of this text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's so many different ideas and so many different sermons you can get out of Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at another angle tonight, so I hope you come back tonight. But first, it's so important, and let's spend a little bit of time uh, figuring out where we are. We need to know the context of, of where we are, what's happening in this passage of Scripture before we get to our main point about not running. So the events of Ruth take place around the same time as the beginning chapters of the book of Judges. As a matter of fact, one scholar that I was looking at Uh, suggested that Ruth may even be an appendix to the book of Judges. That maybe the writer of the book of Judges wrote the book of Judges and then, oh, here's an appendix, here's this story you need. The book of Ruth is an amazing love story, just tucked right here in the Old Testament. It's an amazing story of redemption, pointing to Jesus Christ And I hope if you've never taken time to read the whole book, I mean, it's just a few pages long, you know, and here in my Bible it's, uh, you know, five pages long. It doesn't take you that long to read the whole thing. You know, maybe I could have read the whole thing this morning, but if we looked at the whole thing verse by verse this morning, we would be here for a few days because there's a lot of ideas and there's a lot of truth packed into the pages of Ruth. So this took place about 1,000 or 1,100 years before Jesus was born. So that's the time period we're looking at. It is not a very bright spot in the history of the nation of Israel. Maybe one of their darkest spots up until this time. Why? Well, if we were to go over to Judges chapter 17, it would tell us what's going on there. In Judges chapter 17, it says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You see, God had laid out his law. God had laid out the principles of how they were supposed to live. Just as he's given us principles about how we're supposed to live. But you know what? Instead of doing those things, they said, "Huh, I know better. I can do this over here and it won't hurt. And that leads to one thing, which leads to another. And before you know it, the entire culture has turned into exactly the opposite of what God wants his people to be doing. The people of God are ignoring God and the laws that he had prescribed to them. So to say that they were just blatantly ignoring the will of God may even be an understatement. But as we said, God has a way of moving us back to his will. And that is discipline. That word that none of us like. You know, I I heard one time a child psychologist saying, and I believed it for a little while, a child psychologist I heard said, you know, children really, they enjoy discipline because they enjoy knowing what their boundaries are. I really don't think that's true. I really don't think they enjoy discipline. And you know why I don't think that? Because I don't ever remember enjoying it. My mother had these... uh, Things she called attitude adjustments, you know? I, was, I have an older sister and a younger sister. I'm the middle child. Okay, I got that going against me. And I've got an older sister and a younger sister. Okay, I don't know if anybody else, any other guys here have that stuck in the middle between two girls. But sometimes I needed an attitude adjustment. And my mother knew how to administer those, And even though I was bigger than her. I didn't like it. We don't like discipline, do we? I don't like discipline. But God has a way to move his people back to where he wants them to be, and that involves discipline, and we see that taking place in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days uh, when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. This famine it's the discipline of God upon his people. How do we know that it's discipline? You say, well, couldn't it just be a, a weather phenomenon? Couldn't it just been a dry season? Couldn't it have just been that this happened or this happened? Or Maybe it was global warming before Al Gore knew it existed. Well, no. Because if we look in Leviticus, chapter 26, God had made promises to the people of Israel. God had made promises to his people, and he said that he was promised them a blessing on their land, he promised them a blessing on their basket, that's their food, and he promised them a blessing on their store, that's their riches. But see, it had a little caveat there. It had a condition to the blessing. And if we were to read that in Leviticus chapter 26, we would see that those blessings would come as long as they obeyed his law. Well, guess what? As we see here in verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1, apparently those blessings are gone. And if those blessings are gone, which were promised of God, and the only way those blessings wouldn't come is if they were disobeying his law, what do we know happened? They had strayed away from God's law and he removed the blessing. Just as he had said he'd do. Let me tell you, you can be sure that if God tells you he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He removed the blessing. And so a famine came on the land. And we have to understand that a famine was the absolutely worst thing that could happen to these people. Why? Because they had an agrarian economy. Their entire economy based upon agriculture. And when there was no rain and there were no crops, they couldn't just go down to Brookshire's and buy a can of corn. They had no food. They had no jobs. They had no money. Everything they had was gone. And during the time of famine, let me tell you, there's one thing on the mind of the human being am I going to survive? Am I going to live? And you've got to think about how this weighed on the mind of the husband, how this weighed on the mind of our main character here in this portion of the story, Elimelech. He's got a wife and two kids to feed. He's got people depending upon him. And you know what? He made a mistake that too often we make. How am I going to fix it? That's the question he asked himself. That's not printed here. But we know by the actions he took that's the thought process that went through his mind. How am I going to resolve these problems that have come up on my family? But see, it wasn't limited to his family. It was, it was the entire nation. And we see here another little caveat that when God's judgment comes upon a nation, no one escapes it. The righteous suffer with the unrighteous. I could really get on a soapbox here and say, you know what, I think America is under the judgment of God right now and I only think it's gonna get worse looking around. And you know what? If the judgment of God is put full force against the United States of America, none of us in this room will escape it either. You know why? Because I think, this is Jeremy, reading God's word. This is my interpretation. I think a lot of the problems in this country are the church's fault. The church in America has allowed society to decay to the point it's at. The people of God had decided to stop doing what God told them to do here in Bethlehem and in Judah. And when the people of God decided to stop doing what God wanted them to do, guess what that allowed? It allowed all of society to decay with them. So no one escaped the judgment of God. You know what was maybe even worse about this situation and led to Elimelech's decision? Their enemies. Their biggest enemy they had had plenty the Moabites. Let's bring us up to Elimelech's story. In verse 2, we read, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech makes a decision. He says, I've got a family to feed, I've got to make some money somehow, I've got to find some food, the Moabites have food, let's go there, and that would make perfect sense if we knew nothing else about the Moabites. That would make perfect sense if he had known nothing else about the Moabites. But see, he knew everything about the Moabites, and if we go back and read earlier in the Old Testament, we learn more about the Moabites They were enemies of God, and they were enemies of God's people. These were some of the nastiest people you would ever meet. These people made human sacrifices to their false gods. God referred to them as his washpots. These were the lowest of the low. And God had warned his people, God had commanded his people, you don't have anything to do with the Moabites. But when the going got tough, Elimelech forgot that God was in control. When Elimelech's situation got bad enough, he said, you know what, let's see how I can fix it. Let's go down there and get some food. Now, depending upon the translation of Scripture you have, we see here, just from our English translation, that they didn't intend for this to be a permanent situation. In the New King James Version, which I read out of already, it says he remained there at the end of verse 2. If you have the ESV or the New American Standard Bible, they use the word sojourned. It means he went there as a resident alien. Went there temporarily. As a matter of fact, if we were to read this out of the Amplified Bible, it says they went there to live temporarily. If you have the New International Version, it says they went there to live for a while. Elimelech, probably thinking, I know what God said. But I can get by with disobeying him for just a little while just for survival purposes. I could disobey God just a little bit. We can go down there for a few months and maybe the famine will pass and and then we can come back home. He never planned on staying there. He only planned to go there a little while, avoid the problems, and return when the famine was over. But here's the problem with that. As he soon finds out, you can't run from the will of God. I already told you, I think, the worst-case scenario from a famine is death. Worst-case scenario, you don't survive, your family doesn't survive because of a lack of resources, and you die. Did he avoid the worst-case scenario by going to Moab? No. Verse 3 makes it plain and clear then Elimelech died. You know, I used to work at the newspaper in Arkadelphia when I was in college up there, and uh, we had a lady, she's, she's since died, one of the nicest ladies I've ever met. And she was in charge, she did a lot of things. She was the assistant editor, but uh, she was in charge of, of, of the obituaries that went in. <clears throat> we had two types of obi- obituaries, and uh, you could pay for your obituary, and it could say whatever you wanted it to say. Or you could get the free bit, and we just wrote it according to our format. And let me tell you, if you got the free bit, it would say so-and-so, age, whatever, of wherever, died. You didn't get to pass on to another life or be carried away by angels or however else you wanted to word your obituary. If you got the free bit, you died, and that was all that was to it, Okay. I mean, you got to put your survivors in all that, but when it came to how you left this place, you died. Remember, that's what the Bible says. It's appointed unto man wants to die. Well, there is no getting around what happened to Elimelech. No questions about what happened to him, because the writer makes it plain and clear, while in Moab, while trying to escape death by famine, Elimelech died while trying to escape the worst thing that could happen to him, while trying to get around the will of God, which included discipline on him and the entire nation, guess what? He wasn't able to escape his destiny. Believing that these events took place chronologically as they're written here, after he dies, his sons go on to marry. And they marry women from Moab. Then the boys and and Naomi and the wives, they lived there for ten more years. And look what else happens. Elimelech wasn't able to escape death for other parts of his family either. Because verse 5 tells us the sons died. You see, no matter what he thought he could do, death still came. There's something else we need to point out here. We already said the Moabites were mortal enemies of Israel. They were enemies of God's people. The boys married women from Moab. Okay, we're sinking further away from God's will. We only intended to be here a little while. Now we're moving further and further into it. Ten years... But during that 10 years, sinking further and further in sin, because God had told his people, you don't marry someone who's not a Jew. And we read in the Old Testament, you especially don't marry a Moabite. Marrying a Moabite was worse than marrying someone from another culture. Because these people were so evil, and these people were so much uh, further away from God's Purposes and God's plan for the life of the people of Israel. Why doesn't he want people to marry folks that why didn't he want the Jewish people to marry non-Jews? Well, because guess what could have very easily happened to Elimelech's sons? They marry these Moabite women and they say, you know what, you don't need Jehovah. He's not really God. You need to come worship our God. That's why I'd say to teenagers, don't date some, don't date somebody, especially when you get older. And, you, you know, it's like, hey, this could turn serious. Don't date somebody who believes differently than you believe. Because you know what? It's very likely that they're going to pull you away from your beliefs if you're not firmly rooted. And so God said, you don't marry those folks, especially the Moabites. Now, what would have happened if they'd have stayed in Bethlehem what would have happened if they'd have stayed right there in Judah right there in the midst of the famine I don't know you're thinking I was going to give you a big answer no I don't know scripture doesn't tell us what would have happened had they stayed we know that as we read the rest of chapter one and we get down here to some parts that we'll look at tonight when Naomi goes back guess what not everybody's dead People have survived and they're actually living the high life because God is good and his blessings have returned to Bethlehem. And by running away and ended up staying gone 10 years, there's no doubt, Naomi and the boys and even Elimelech missed out on the blessing. The blessing returned long before Naomi got back. And look at what she missed out on. I don't know if they'd have lived I don't know if they would have died, but here's what I do know. Elimelech's sin cost he and his family more than he could have ever imagined. Because he thought, we can just do it for a little while. We can just go down here and live for a little while. And when he went there, and he entered into that that nature of sin that was in Moab, he was drawn deeper and deeper into it. Reminds me of an old song. A lot of you may know it. It's an old southern gospel song. The cathedrals sang it. And the chorus says, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay, and sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. That pretty much sums up the experience of Elimelech going to Moab took him further than he wanted to go. Slowly, the culture took his family. They stayed there longer than they ever imagined. And it took so much from them. And their family paid a price so much higher than they may have paid if they would have just stayed put. It's already mentioned, I think in the United States, we face a similar circumstance to a limo-lay in a lot of ways, and I think it's going to get worse. Let me encourage you for a minute, and I think this is scriptural, let me encourage you to vote coming up in November. I think you still got time to register if you're not registered to vote in Arkansas. I don't know about Louisiana's laws, but I assume you still have time to register there. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not going to vote because there's nobody to vote for for president. They're both just as bad and liberal as the other, okay? I don't know what you think. Those were not necessarily my views. I'm just telling you what a lot of people in the church think. But you know what? There's some down-ticket offices that actually have some control over the top of the ticket. That's what I love about America. The president's not the king, and the president's not a dictator. You know, Congress has some control over the White House. It happened just this last week. So just because you don't like either of the two people at the top, still vote and vote according to what this says. Get one of those voter guides and vote according to your scriptural beliefs. But by all means, vote, because the United States is sinking further and further into moral decay, and if the judgment of God isn't already here, and I believe in a lot of ways it is, you know what? If past performance is any any indicator of future results, and I believe the past tells us a lot, Guess what? The judgment of God is coming. And I think it's coming hard if we read the Scripture. God's Word tells us exactly what to do when we face that type of a problem or when we face any other problem in life. God's Word would tell Elimelech what to do. You know, sometime later, I told you this was about uh, a thousand years before Jesus was born. About 500 years later or so, when the prophet Isaiah writes... He actually tells us what to do during these types of situations. Did you know that? Over in Isaiah 40, you've heard the passage of Scripture. It says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. It says, those who wait on the Lord. Sometimes we run from our problems because we are too weak to deal with the problems. And I'll tell you, in our human sense, yes, we are too weak to deal with the problems, but we serve a God who is not. And the scripture tells us if we will wait on him, you know what waiting entails? Waiting does not entail sitting on your hands and doing nothing. Waiting entails seeking him out through his word. Waiting entails praying without ceasing. Waiting entails doing something, but depending on him to do what he's going to do. I shared this thought with the youth Wednesday night, and I like it. I read, if you're running, you're too busy to soar. I don't know about you, but my least favorite mode of transportation is running. And as a matter of fact, if you see me running, you better turn and run in the same direction because something's coming. And it's bad. I don't like to run physically. But you know, running spiritually is just as exhausting. There's a lot of people running spiritually today. I think there's people in this room right now who are spiritually running from something. You see, that's the problem is that too often we're running from something and not to something. We're just running, trying to get away from something. And guess what? We generally get somewhere, but it's not where we ought to get. When we're too busy running from something, we end up at places like running to a drink. We end up running into other unhealthy habits. Maybe we sit down and binge eat with a bag of Oreos. I don't know. That's still not good. Some people run into the arms of someone they're not married to when they're facing a problem. Some people run into the computer screen and things they should have no, no business looking at. Some people run by lashing out at others. See, the problem with running from our problems is that there is no destination involved. And we end up at places we should never be. So maybe, instead of running from our problems, we should be running to God. What Elimelech should have been doing. But I wouldn't be doing the story any justice if I left it right there. So you see, Elimelech's story, as oftentimes with our story. When we try to do something, we completely mess things up. Let me tell you, I would be up here a while if I tried to tell you all the times that I tried to take life into my own control and messed it up. I've done it a lot of times. But as I've heard it said, God can take our mess and turn it into a message. And you know, that's exactly what he did with Elimelech's mess. He turned it into a message. If we were to read... The rest of the story here in the book of Ruth, maybe you know the story. If you don't, go well, let me just give you the Cliff Notes version of it. Maybe you like Cliff Notes. I did in college. And uh, they don't work in literature class if you're in college. You just read the book. Here's the rest of the story. The famine's over and Naomi gets word of it. And so Naomi, she says, I'm going home to Bethlehem. And she tells her daughters-in-law, you stay here, go back to your families and remarry because if you come with me, you'll just grow old like me and be an old widow lady. Well, Orpah said, she kissed her on the cheek and said, okay, see you later. But Ruth, maybe the second place hero in the story, I'll tell you why she's in second place in a minute. She says, no, I'm going with you. As we read, Over in verse 16, what Ruth said, she says, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you for wherever you go, I will go and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And so Ruth returns to Bethlehem with Naomi, making a profession of faith in Jehovah God, turning away from the lifestyle of her ancestors in Moab and turning her life to God, to the one true God. So you see, if you know anything else about Ruth, Elimelech's family story doesn't end in death. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we see that his family story doesn't end in death. Because as you read through Matthew chapter 1 here, and we have this list of genealogy that's listed, and we won't read all through it. Mainly because I can't pronounce some of the names. But in verse 5, it, and you have to know, of course, if you don't know, the word begot means fathered. So it says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Same Ruth we're talking about back in Ruth chapter 1. And Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David the king. So Ruth ends up as the great-great-grandmother of David. You know, the guy with the slingshot who killed Goliath and then later became, became king of Israel. Read on down. The genealogy continues. Direct descendants from Ruth to verse 16, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. You see, God took Elimelech's mess, and he turned it into the greatest story that has ever been told. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, maybe this morning you've been running from a problem. Or maybe you say, I've made too big a mess of my problem already. You can't make any bigger of a mess than a limeleck made. Your mess can't result in any worse circumstances than his ended in. He and his two sons died. But you know what? God can turn your story completely around as well. Your story doesn't have to end where it is today. Maybe your story ends up like Elimelech's family. Maybe you turn your story around through the power of Jesus Christ. And who knows? how your story can end. only God knows how your story can end. I'll ask our musicians to come. And I'm so thankful this story ends this way. I'm so thankful this story ends with Jesus Christ coming, leaving heaven and taking on the flesh of a man and coming to earth because you know what? God knew we would mess up. And God knew that we would run. And He knew that when we were running, most of the time we wouldn't be running to Him. So He sent Jesus to find us. And this morning, if you've been running, maybe you've been running from something you know God wants you to do, or maybe your life's just in such a shambles because you don't, you hadn't been looking to see what God even wanted you to do in the first place, you know what? You can turn it around right now this morning. You know what? You can come to Jesus where you are in this altar or wherever you want to, and he can put you back on the path that you need to be on. This morning, I hope we'll stop running from our problems and recommit to running to Jesus Christ. Whatever God's laid on your heart this morning, would you take care of that as we stand and sing?